Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Criminology Academy podcast, where we are criminally academic. My name is Jen Tosleib. And my name is Jose Sanchez. It's episode 91. And for this episode, we have on Professor Stephanie Bonas, who is speaking with us about gender, specifically femininity anchors in sexual harassment, assault and discrimination in the U.S. military. Stephanie Bonas is an assistant professor of criminal justice and assistant dean of the Henry C. Lee College, criminal justice and forensic sciences at the University of New Haven. Her scholarship broadly focuses on victimization and the intersections of gender inequality, identity and organizations. Her book, Hardship Duty, Women's Experiences with Sexual Harassment, Sexual Assault and Discrimination in the U.S. Military with Oxford University Press came out in December. Her work has been published in American Sociological Review, Feminist Criminology, Gender and Society, and Violence Against Women. In this episode, our conversation centers around two of Stephanie's publications, the first being Femininity Anchors, Heterosexual Relationships and Pregnancy as Sites of Harassment for U.S. Service Women, published in the American Sociological Review in 2023, and her new book, Hardship Duty, Women's Experiences with Sexual Harassment, Sexual Assault, and Discrimination in the U.S. Military. With that being said, let's bring Stephanie in. Hi, Stephanie. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're excited to talk with you about your research. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. All right. So let's jump right in. Much of your work really focuses on gender and victimization in the United States' military. But before we get into your own specific work, we want to set the stage a little bit. A good amount of our listeners come from outside of the U.S. And even those who reside within the United States may not be overly familiar with the military, like myself, even though I have plenty of family in the military. You describe in your work the military as a masculine organization. Can you just give us the lay of the land when it comes to the environment, particularly regarding gender within the U.S. military? Sure. I think it always helps to start with, you know, looking at how many men and women are in the military. So first of all, the military is dominated by men in terms of just sheer numbers. And across the Department of Defense's active duty forces in 2022, It was comprised of 82.5% men and 17.5% women. All in, we're talking about 228,966 women across the branches of the armed forces. This equates to about 4.7 men to every one woman officer and 3.9 enlisted men for every one woman who's enlisted. But these percentages, they vary by branch. So the Air Force has the largest representation of women with 21.5% of the Air Force being women. And the Marine Corps has the lowest with 9.4% women. And so I think when it comes to this, like a space dominated by men does not always mean a hyper-masculine space, right? But this is an important component because the space is dominated by men. And of course, the things that the military values encourage what I would say is an aggressive warrior masculinity, as well as, well, this would mean valuing things like being stoic, being physically strong, being dominant, being aggressive and violent. And then on top of that, the culture also encourages denigrating both weakness and femininity, as well as a problematic you know, false idea that these two things are equated, right? So that femininity equals weakness. 
And importantly, not all men participate in this culture and in this value system in the military. There are men who work against it and try to stand up for people who are being harassed and actively try to erode the culture. But the fact is, when this is what the military is saying it values through a variety of things like trainings, slogans, (laughs) the decor on the walls of military bases, a lot of people will then attach to those values and meanings and try to display them themselves for whatever reason, whether that's because they think that that's what it means to embody the ideal service member, whether they see other people doing it and think that that's how they need to fit in, or whether they fear that they'll be ostracized because it's so normalized that if they don't participate, that they'll be ostracized for not doing it. The fact is that a lot of people will subscribe to those values. And when the space is dominated by men, it becomes a little, that's what produces these troubling dynamics for service women is the culture plus the domination of men in that culture. And then also how it becomes layered on top of the way military life is structured. And by that, I mean, people live, work, and socialize in one concentrated space. So that would be the gendered terrain in terms of numbers, statistics, and then also the value system. Awesome. You just covered a couple of my questions. So that's great. You know, still speaking about this idea of the military being a masculine organization, obviously women, I'm sure there's plenty of women who adopt to this kind of culture that you were discussing, but in what ways do the women, the service women navigate this idea of masculinity and masculine organization context in the military? That's a really good question. And I think that it has several answers. The way that it's phrased that you're looking at the individual level, how do individual Mm -hmm. women navigate this highly gendered terrain that is dominated in varying degrees by men? The women I spoke with navigate it in different ways and the ways in which they do so changes throughout their service because ultimately all of the ways in which they handle it are coping mechanisms because nothing they do can change the underlying culture that produces pervasive sexual harassment. So I'll give you a couple of examples of how they navigate and cope. The first step is military training. Initial training is really an isolating experience. You're taken away from your friends and family and support system. You have only designated hours where you can contact them. Maybe just on the weekend, you have your phone. You can only write letters, for example. And you are also being put through a series of training where they are trying to shape your new identity. It's an identity change process where they're stripping you down, they're breaking you down, and then building you back up in terms of what they think that you need to learn as a Marine or a sailor or a soldier, et cetera. And in this environment, people are trying to survive and they're trying to also learn and adapt and cope. And I would say there's actually a lot of buy-in from people that like, oh, I can do this. I can be physically strong. I can do all of these things. And they really try to embody, I'm a soldier now, or I'm a Marine now. Importantly, they're not called those things until after the training is complete. They're called, you know, cadets or trainees. And so that is very much cemented that you're becoming this, you know, soldier, Marine, et cetera, through this process. For 21 of the women that I interviewed, they were in the Marine Corps, which means they were in gender segregated training. For them, they were trained only with women. So I would say it wasn't until they left that initial initial training that they then realized how pervasive the harassment actually was because they were like, oh, I can do this. I can embody a warrior and fit in. But then they're reaching their next schoolhouse where they're going to be trained in their job related training. And they're seeing like, oh, no, the way men have been built up is to denigrate and hate women. And that is where they take on different like different strategies to cope with it. So the first one would be straight avoidance, trying to trying to I think Hart calls it trajectory guarding, sort of looking at every person, trying to assess 
risk. Who's a riskier person? And how do I keep create distance between me and that person? I had one participant who there was a guy, she would never be, have her back towards him because he would come up and pinch her women's sides. And so she said she would enter a room and just put her back immediately to a wall if she had to interact with him. Other people just trying to avoid people that were known uh, harassers or known perpetrators of violence. So avoidance was a strategy. Another strategy was adapting to the culture, just trying to participate, to view the harassment as more of a joke, as not serious, to see it as humor, to survive it, right? If it's constant and then you think of it as constant harassment, that could really erode your mental and physical ability to maintain your status in the military. So some people would just participate. Some people would engage in defensive othering, right? Uh, trying to talk to other people about other women to create distance between that negative identity and yourself, right? I could be the one woman to fit in or one of the few women to fit in. Some would play up their masculinity and downplay femininity. That would be a similar adaptation strategy. And some women did confront harassers. Like, so it could be as light as, hey, I don't like that, or don't talk that way around me, or some were pretty aggressive, like shut the fuck up and don't ever say that to a Marine. But importantly, I think that, oh, and then others reported it through official reporting streams. One woman that I interviewed reported someone in the Air Force Academy, and he had emailed porn to the entire class, which you can't do, obviously. <laughs> and yeah. she reported it. And then afterwards, her in her peer evaluations, the other cadets said we would let her die in Afghanistan if we were together and her plane was shot down because she's not a team player. Mm -hmm. she's, you know, she's outing people in the family. And so she later said, like, I would never report something similar again because of the social consequences of that. It made her the rest of her time at the academy miserable. And so I think what happens is a lot of women adopt a few of these strategies, I think, most women try all of them at some point, but th these strategies really do nothing to stop harassment. And that's why they need to try on these different ways of coping. And they, they often take different approaches and they find like, hey, none of this is working. So on this issue of harassment, we've seen, especially when it comes to sexual assault and um, sexual harassment, it's made headlines across the various U.S. military branches. You know, for example, there was the 1991 Navy tailhook sexual assaults where U.S. Navy and U.S. Marine Corps aviation officers were alleged to have assaulted up to 83 women and seven men as well. And then more recently, there's the sexual harassment and murder of uh, Vanessa Guillen in April 2020. Do we have any numbers or a rough estimate as to how many sexual assaults or incidents of sexual harassment occur in the U.S. military yearly? Yes, great question. The Department of Defense is really good about tracking this data. In 2005, they established the Sexual Assault Prevention and Response Office. And that office is in charge of policies, victim-friendly toolkits, resources, as well as data tracking. So in 2022, they had 8,942 reports of sexual assault involving service members as victims or subjects, which was a 1% increase from the fiscal year 2021. That is actually how many people reported. The DOD also 
put surveys out that ask service members, you know, a variety of questions about actions that happen to them. And they so they also produce a measure of estimated prevalence. And the estimated prevalence in 2021 was at 8.4% of active duty service women were assaulted. So that's about 19,257 women. And so if you're doing the math, which I'm not because I'm cheating, I'm looking at the numbers, <laughs> that's an estimated one in five actually report their sexual assaults. This is compared to 6.2% of active duty service women that were assaulted in 2018 and 4.3% in 2016. So the DOD's finding that this problem is not just maintaining, it's escalating, and that reporting rates are estimated to have gone down. So this is not because more people are reporting. So one in five victims were estimated to have reported in 2021 compared to one in three in 2018 and one in three in 2016. They also have a variety of questions about like confidence in the military to handle your case and whether you trust the military to keep you safe in the aftermath of an assault. And these measures are at a 10-year low for men and women. And so reporting's down, assaults are up, confidence in the military to handle it's down. Decline in trust in the military system to ensure safety is happening as well. And they're also looking at a correlation between sexual harassment and assaults and they're finding, you know, negative military climates can predict if there's a lot of harassment in a unit, there's more likely to be sexual assault in a unit. So we see that the problem is we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of the founding of the Sexual Assault Prevention and Response Office, and we're finding that the problem's not getting any better. And this is where my work enters because I, a lot of people when the instance that you just mentioned happened, Navy Tailhook, there were no policies. So it makes sense. Let's make some policies. <laughs> let's let's create some sort of structure that can begin to look at this issue. But by 2020, when Vanessa Guyana is murdered, we have the military some of the most comprehensive workplace policies on sexual harassment and sexual assault compared to any other workplace. They have victim-friendly resources like free legal counsel. They have access to an expedited transfer if you're being sexually harassed in your unit and you want to move to a different unit or to a different base. They have access to victim advocates and they have like a case management group where people meet monthly to discuss whether you're getting your therapeutic services, your legal services. These are all great. The problem is they're not helping. And so oftentimes what we see is people say, well, we need a policy that's going to really address this. Without, but these policies do nothing to shape that culture, that hyper-masculine, femophobic culture that then not only allows this to continue, but actually creates the space for policies to be used to cause harm rather than to assist victims. So policies become tools of harassment and they bend to the culture in which they're being enacted, especially in the military context where you have so much discretion in how to use withhold or deny access to policies. Because of that, I think that the problem won't change with just looking at policies. We need to get down to the culture instead. Yeah. All right. So in the article that we are about to discuss, and you've mentioned this a little bit, but I want to get more into how you see this, but you detail how much of the research on victimization when in the US military focuses on various forms of harassment and showing that sexual abuse frequencies are high. So really talking about types and numbers and frequencies. Can you tell us how your work differs from this previous body of work and builds off of it to tell us more? Yeah, I think that 
we know that this is a problem. We've known statistically the, the quantitative data has shown us the scope of the problem. It's increasing or at least persisting. And I think what we and then all these policies are developed. And I think what we don't see is, well, how are service women experiencing it? How are they understanding it? How are they adapting to it? And you can't really get that information from a survey. You have to talk to people. And a lot of the findings that I've developed have not even been related to questions I've asked. They come out of just induct analysis of the data, right? And so I think the difference is I watched the, the documentary, The Invisible War, before I started this data collection. And I saw that, okay, these people are having trouble accessing policies. They're having trouble once they report it, actually getting their benefits, you know? And I was like, there's something going on where it's been made very difficult for them to navigate this system of reporting. And said, okay, I want to talk to service women. And I started to design a study to ask service women about their experiences with harassment and violence. And then I took a qualitative methods course and shout out to Dr. Christy Sue, who was like, you may be imposing on these service women, you know, a problem that they might not see as a problem. And so she said, maybe you should take a step back and ask some broader questions instead of just diving right into harassment and assault. And I said, oh, that's true. Like maybe sexual harassment is a problem, but maybe other problems are more pressing to them. So I designed a really broad interview guide that I, where I asked questions like, can you tell me about three of your most prominent memories of your military service? And boom, that's where all the harassment stories came in. 47 out of 50 women I spoke with had pervasive harassment experiences. 40% of the sample were sexually assaulted while in the military, some of them multiple times by multiple people. And it almost always came up during that question. And only for three women did I have to get to the end of the interview without them bringing up issues of harassment. And then I turned to more harassment specific questions. So it was nice to be able to ask that and see that, no, this really was something that they found as most memorable about their service were these pervasive harassment experiences. And so I really wanted to take an approach that centered the participants. I wanted to hear their stories and I wanted to understand what the military was like from their perspective. And I just don't think a lot of the quantitative research does that, right? Because you're designing all the questions for all the measurements and variables that you need to know about beforehand. So I was able to create a study that centered them. All right. Well, I think that's that's the stage nicely to start moving into your 2023 American Sociological Review article titled Femininity Anchors, Heterosexual Relationships and Pregnancy as Sites of Harassment for U.S. Service Women. And so just spoken a little bit about how you work you know, differs and builds on the previous research in this area. But can you tell us a little bit more about what was the actual motivation behind this article? Yeah, this paper took me a long time to write. I had been thinking and theorizing about femininity a lot. I had read so much about masculinity, and then I was thinking about femininity, which I think is really under-theorized in the literature. We have so many theories of masculinity. There's not a lot of femininity stuff. There's a new journal of femininities that I think will change this. But at the time, I was consuming everything I could about femininity. And there was a paper, I think it's 2019, uh, by Hamilton and colleagues about hegemonic femininity. And I found myself like really debating this concept because, of course, Connell in the original conceptualization of hegemonic masculinity basically says in the book, like, there's no such thing as hegemonic femininity. It can't exist because the unequal gender order automatically means that there's a subordination of femininity to masculinity. And so Hamilton and colleagues really challenge this idea by saying, well, it can exist because there are ways in which an individual group of women can gain 
from acquiescing to the hegemonic masculine, like whatever is the dominant masculinity in a given context. And so that was their argument. I found that really fascinating. And I find myself agreeing with Hoshkin, who says that this is more patriarchal femininity than hegemonic femininity. So it would basically mean acquiescing to the hegemonic masculinity in a given context. So by supporting the dominant gender relations, you're able to gain some benefits, right? So you, if you are able to acquiesce to men's desires and not challenge the hegemonic masculinity in that space, you might be more popular. You might get more better dating relationships. You might get more money. You might get a job easier. So you would get some of those, what they call patriarchal dividends, would flow to you, but only through the men that you're supporting, right? And then that led me to looking at Mimi Shipper's concept of pariah femininities, which basically says, and anytime women embody masculinity, it is not coded as masculine. It's read as inappropriately feminine. And so you are met with things like if you're aggressive, for example, it's not like, oh, that's great. You're uh, performing masculinity well in this masculine space. It's like you're a bitch. If you're talking about having sex a lot, like you're a slut, you're not praised. And so I was looking at all these different things floating around about femininity. And I said, you know, what's really weird about the military context is that it's really women who are embodying that emphasized femininity or embodying patriarchal femininity that are experiencing elevated harassment in these moments. And I said, I don't understand what's happening with that because it's a, it's it's against what the other literature is saying. So in a college campus, for example, you can actually escape harassment if you get into a relationship with somebody, right? People stop calling you a slut. But it was like people were more harassing women who were getting in these heterosexual relationships in the military. And my, I went back before this episode and I looked at one of my memos and I found in the memo, it said, what is the opposite of Anderson's masculinity insurance, whereby a man can break masculine norms or expectations if he has built up enough masculinity insurance. And this is Anderson's book on athletes, right? So looking at gay athletes who are able to escape the stigma, any stigma or labeling processes that that come with being gay by being very athletic and and good at athletics. And I said, "Uh, I don't know. And I I started to think about it. What's happening to them? And I thought they're being anchored to femininity. No matter what they do, if they're embodying a masculine identity, it doesn't matter if they're pregnant. They are stuck to femininity. It doesn't matter once their heterosexual relationship becomes known. They're stuck to femininity. And in this hyper-masculine context where femininity is so devalued, that results in elevated harassment. So that was the motivation behind the paper. Yeah, <laughs> I could go on, but I'll stop there. <laughs> no, that's great. Just in while you were talking and also in your paper, you used a few terminologies that maybe some of our listeners may not be familiar with. Things like warrior masculinity, hegemonic masculinity, emphasize femininity. Can yeah. you just give us a description or a definition for these terms? Move sure. forward. So Connell defines hegemonic masculinity as a set of behaviors or practices and processes that privilege a specific kind of masculinity in a given context. So in one context, some things are going to be valued and in a different context, different things are going to be valued. But in all contexts, there is a hegemonic masculinity that serves to legitimate the unequal gender relations between men and women. Hegemonic masculinity is constructed in relations in relation to femininity and is always prioritized as better than femininity, but it's also constructed in relation to other masculinities so that there's always a hierarchy of masculinity. And why does that matter? Well, it's because 
benefits, privileges, and resources flow to the person who can embody the hegemonic masculine identity the best in a given space. And so there's a lot of research that looks at how does this unfold? You know, people are teasing each other, they're labeling each other, they are harassing each other in order to obtain those identities. You know, they're not static, right? So one person could one day be seen as embodying the hegemonic masculine, but it's a constant process that you're constantly engaging in to do gender in that way. And the concept of warrior masculinity would be the military specific contextualized masculinity. So that would be in the military valuing things like being stoic, aggressive, in control, dominant, strong, a warrior, right? Violent, going on a combat deployment, for example, would be an embodiment of that warrior masculinity. Emphasized femininity is understood as displays of femininity that would be complementing the hegemonic masculinity. So you would accommodate the interests of men. What does that mean? It means that it usually maps onto other power structures. So it's usually white affluent cis women who are most and straight cis women who are able to gain the most benefits from this identity work. But in the military context, Emphasized femininity, I think, would be represented through, you know, being in a heterosexual relationship. Anytime that you actually call attention to femininity, right? If you're wearing makeup, that would be a a femininity display. I think that these things are going to be more noticed in a context that is so hypermasculine. Thanks for that. We like definitions here, so that's really (laughs) helpful. All right. So as we have discussed, and you've thrown a lot of these ideas around, In the military, women may downplay or show femininity in ways that don't necessarily do this complementation work to hegemonic masculinity. And if that is the case, what could result for them through this display or lack of display of femininity? I think most people in the military are downplaying femininity. And so that includes service women. I think a lot of service women are doing masculinity in the military. And so what they try to do is they will, there's a constant need to balance the downplaying of femininity with the showing and displaying of masculinity. So a woman in my sample, she said, you know, I used to tell the guys I worked with, my perfume was like Luda Diesel, right? And so not only is she saying like, I don't wear perfume, but she's basically also performing masculinity. Like I usually smell like diesel because I work on a fuel truck. And so she, and then she says, she reminds people of this. Like every time someone tried to say like, oh, you look fancy. Like if she was in civilian clothing and wearing a dress, they might say something like that. And then she would remind them like, no, I'm not feminine. Like I smell like a fuel truck. And so that's a pretty like stark example. But other times it's just embodying, being strong, winning, trying to win or beat men in any sort of combat, like If you have any trainings or any physical tests, you know, trying to do outdo men or perform better, you can't be in the last third of the hike, for example, or the last third of the run. And also just women who had been on combat deployments, especially would use this in interaction with other service members particularly men to be like, you've never even deployed, let alone been on a combat deployment. So using that to call attention, like, hey, I am the warrior. Uh, They're not necessarily associating it with masculinity in that case, but they're associating it with warrior, right? And so we see how they're trying to invoke those identities. When I really don't think a lot of people played up femininity in my sample, people would often downplay femininity. I mean, I feel like that makes sense just being in the military context. So you also discuss how sexuality, particularly heterosexuality, is displayed in the military context. Can you describe how 
previous research has concluded heterosexuality may play out among men and women in the military? I think that a lot of the sexuality research more looks at how there were benefits flowing through heterosexuality. And I think that that's because this research focused on men. And so, of course, like, of course, it was the military could discharge you for being gay until Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed. And so a lot of the research would look at how there was heterosexual privilege operating and then a lot of homophobia in the military. And there is still a lot of homophobia in the military. And uh, Katie Connell, I will refer to her book, A Few Good Gays. It's my go-to source of information on this. But she basically argues that there's a heteronormative bargain in the military where lesbian, gay, and bisexual service members can be accepted and welcomed, but only if they support heteronormativity in other realms. So this means like rejecting trans inclusion and rejecting femininity as having any place in the organization. So if you operate outside of those bounds, you're going to be harassed and more. And this inclusion can always be revoked. And that's sort of how I feel about women trying to embody masculinity. Whether or not they achieve it is based on people who have power in the organization to say like, oh, yeah, you have achieved it. And I'm going to give you power for that. Or like, hey, yeah, you fit in. And so it's always something that even if you gain the status as, you know, an honorary man in a space, right, it can be taken away by the next group of men you encounter or by the next person you encounter. So it's not a stable identity and it's not a stable process. It involves constant negotiation. So it was the same for the people in Connell's sample where they felt like, okay, there is a space for me if I'm lesbian, gay or bisexual, but not if I go outside of supporting heteronormativity. And so... For me, that book, her book was really helpful for me in thinking about this because I said, I'm finding the same thing. Because when I was reading my data, I noticed that it was relationships when people were experiencing elevated harassment. So I coded for elevated harassment anytime somebody said something like the most extreme or the worst. It got particularly bad. Words like that signaled to me that this was more negative for them. I realized it was centering around people's relationships and then also their pregnancies. And then I said, okay, well, let me go back. And I reread every transcript for any time someone mentioned getting into a relationship. And what I found was that it was when lesbian women got into a relationship, they were not describing it in the context of a harassment episode. And so that became really helpful for me to realize like, oh, it's heterosexual relationships that are triggering these events. And so that is really important for the theory here, right? For the concept of femininity anchors. And I think that basically it was servicemen's interpretations of women's heterosexual relationships, which then linked them to femininity. It wasn't anyone trying to display femininity. And so that's what I think is really important about the concept of femininity anchors is that they are tied to this identity despite any gender identity work that they do. They are it's based on how other people interpret like their life course events, so their relationships and their pregnancies. And these things were not happening for the lesbian women in my sample, although the lesbian women in my sample were still harassed and they still experienced some homophobia, but it wasn't centered around their relationship. So it's just the different way that the warrior masculinity is operating to oppress different identities at different times. All right. So in this particular paper that we're discussing, you were really interested in delving into server women's experiences with harassment. And to do so, you levied semi-structured in-depth interviews with 50 U.S. service women that you conducted between 2014 and 2019. And you sought participants across the various military branches, different ranks, uh, and from different classes and races. Just so briefly, what did your sample look like descriptively? 
So I had 50 people. I had the most people in the Marine Corps. I think it's 21. And then the Air Force, 13, the Army, 11, the Navy, 5. I had for a while, I was oversampling officers because my snowball sample started with Marine Corps white officers. And so I had a lot of them in my sample. And then that's when I started these alternate recruitment methods to do more theoretical sampling. So I had 31 enlisted, uh, 19 officers. I had 34 white women, five black women, six Latino women, one indigenous woman and four Asian American women. And I had nine lesbian or bisexual women and 41 heterosexual women. And one may assume that, and I feel like this is pretty common with criminologists and like the populations that we tend to study, but gaining access to the U.S. military and its members may seem especially daunting or challenging, especially if you yourself are maybe not a a member of the military. Did you run into any obstacles or roadblocks when you were trying to conduct your interviews? Yes, I did. So that's why it took so long, right, to get 50 people. I had three contacts who were in the Marine Corps. They were all officers in the Marine Corps. And I snowball sampled from them for the first 21 participants. And those interviews came about in about a year from those three different networks. And then I realized that the sample was pretty similar. And so I I started just reaching out on social media, on Facebook groups. I joined a ton of Facebook groups about the military and military women. And I would recruit from that, from those pools, and then try to snowball through those people. Twice, I was invited to military bases uh, by former participants just to meet their friends and people in their unit. And that was shut down both times because they realized they had to go up the chain of command in order to get more and more permission. And then people were just like, absolutely not. This is not happening. And so anytime I needed to go through official military channels, it did not work. So I I had to just use like more informal recruitment methods. I finally was able to go to a military base uh, to observe courts martial. But that was through, again, like a friend, a person that I knew who vouched for me and really didn't care about the rules. So courts martial are open to observations, but you need a sponsor to bring you on base. And he was just like, yeah, you're coming on base with me and like didn't really ask anybody. And so I just went. (laughs) yeah the whole time I was reading your paper I was just because I do work in prison which is also really hard I was like this has to be fair or this had to have been really challenging and I was wondering with the five-year gap like is that part of the reason or was there more to it so yeah and I wanted people across different branches like I think I could have done a study of just the Marine Corps but it was it's obviously the most gendered branch I would argue because there's so few women and they're the few the proud the fewer the prouder And I just think that people would have said, yeah, but this isn't happening in the rest of the military. And so I didn't want them to stand out as, you know, well, of course, that's happening in the Marine Corps. Like, let's ignore anything that you find. (laughs) All right. So you've mentioned a little bit about your results, but let's really dive directly into your results at this moment. So your first group of findings were really related to this idea of heterosexuality and elevated sexual harassment. First, you were interested in whether service women experienced harassment. And then you also added on this context of elevated harassment, as which you described as, you know, being worse, particularly bad, extreme, etc. How many women discussed incidents of harassment and then also elevated harassment? Okay, great question. So across the sample, uh, 91, 47 out of 50 women discussed harassment that I spoke with and um, people who discussed sexual harassment was 91 
percent of the sample, so 43 women, and then 45 women discussed gender harassment. And then 40%, so 19 women, were sexually assaulted while they were serving in the military. And the when we talk about elevated forms of harassment, and again, this is unlike a survey, I didn't say like, now rank your experiences with yeah. harassment, right? So it took like the coding and the inductive process to code these as elevated harassment. I never asked like, what was your worst experience with harassment? Might be a question I would ask in the future. But so perhaps people just didn't make a hierarchy of them. But of people who did on their own, I think it's 24, 24 people did rank their harassment experiences. Actually, I think it's 28. And there's four not in this paper because they described it when they were in environment dominated by men, which is not surprising. <laughs> so if they're the only woman on a job site, for example, they would experience elevated harassment. So the people in this paper who experienced these things is 24 women. And so 16 of them discussed elevated harassment when they were in a heterosexual relationship and eight in, when they were pregnant. And out of all the pregnant, there are only nine pregnant women in my sample. So it's for eight out of the nine pregnant in my sample. So yeah, they experienced elevated harassment and they would often say like, this is a really bad one or this is particularly bad. And I also sometimes coded it as, I think in two cases, as elevated harassment when they described after the relationship was known, experiencing like a change in severity. So if someone verbally harassed them and then moved to like trying to touch them or actually assaulting them physically, I described that as elevated harassment. So that happened for two of the women I interviewed. I feel like I knew harassment was higher in the military, but reading this paper, I didn't realize it was like in the 90%. And that was kind of jarring to me that you're in this work environment, which kind of sounds like it should be safe and relatively free of this. And yet these very, very high percentages, it just shocked me. Yeah. I think what's difficult about it is that like, again, you live and you work and you socialize all in the same place. And there's really... (laughs) women stand out in the space, right? There's so few of them, they stand out. If, if you wanted to, it's very easy to be like, oh, this is that person's work schedule. Oh, they wait for the this shuttle every day after work. Oh, they play basketball at this court. Oh, they usually go to the gym at this time just because there's so few of them and they stand out really easily. And some women in my sample described like men standing outside of their door saying like, oh, the female lives here, like outside of their room. Uh, other women said like men would knock on her door multiple times a day. Three men a day sometimes would knock on her door to ask her out. And she was like, they weren't even men that I knew. And her strategy for that was to say like, sure, you want to go out? I I go to church every Sunday. So she tried like this religious identity to like get, basically be like, I'm not a slut. I'm not a bitch. I'm religious. And like, if you want to go to church with me. So she tried to avoid those sort of negative feminine identities. But it's very pervasive. People experience these things in all different situations at work itself, at work parties. I think in this paper, there's two examples of one. They're at a section party or a unit party where this guy who's sexually harassing her takes off his bathing suit and his underwear and is blocking her ability to like get back on the beach while she's swimming in the water. And his wife and his family are there. Another woman in this paper was sexually assaulted by her boss outside of his house when he invited people from the unit over after he realized that, and she was on the phone with her boyfriend at the time. And so these things are happening in all different spaces. I have women talk about like being 40,000 feet in the air on a plane and the pilot reaches over and grabs your leg. So these things are happening in all kinds of different spaces in the military. So after looking, you know, at the prevalence or the occurrence of harassment, 
As we've mentioned, you were really interested in whether elevated sexual harassment were related to heterosexual relationships, which you did find that they were. Can you talk a little bit more about this and maybe give an example of what you were seeing and how you interpreted these interactions? Yeah. So I feel like what I noticed is that the women I spoke with, they had people who always made sexual comments to them or propositioned them for sex. So in the case of Lila, who's quoted in the first part of the paper, she actually said things weren't going well for me at work and things weren't going so well for me at work, in part because I had met and fallen in love with an Air Force guy. And so there were only 90 Navy people on the base. And for me to pick an Air Force guy, that was something. And then because of that, I was sexually harassed. So in this case, it's not only was she was she being sexually harassed by more people, but people were telling her that like, well, it wouldn't be like this if you picked a Navy guy. And so they're they're actually justifying it to her. And she's hearing this to them, like from them about like why they're harassing her more. And so it not only it just shows that like service men feel the need and it's completely normalized for them to police women's choices of an intimate partner. And the way that they police those things is through enhanced and elevated sexual harassment. And then they just say, well, you shouldn't have picked this guy. What did you expect? It actually, it really reminds me of one of the victims of Navy tail hook was told by her boss. He said, what did you expect when you hang out in a hotel room with a bunch of drunk aviators, right? Sort of, you should have known that this is what was going to happen. And then what I do in the paper is I try to show that there is this justification. It's always about this, the man that the woman's with being an outsider. And so in another instance, you know, a woman dates an officer and she's enlisted, which is actually not allowed. It's called fraternization. It's illegal. The person who was engaged to this woman could have been court-martialed for fraternization if anybody had bothered to report him for this. But instead, her commander actually gave her negative evaluation for that. And a bunch of people just started saying, well, you shouldn't be picking an officer. You're betraying, you're betraying the enlisted people. And so then what I do is I show, well, even women who date servicemen of their same rank and their same unit and their same branch, they're also sexually harassed. So what's going on here? It's not about the othering of the service man. It's about the fact that women are dating men. And, you know, whatever reason they're harassing them, whether it's because they are appearing more feminine because they're in a heterosexual relationship, whether or not it's invoking in some of the men this idea of like, well, now I can't sexually engage you or romantically engage you. And so I'm going to react negatively. It is these moments that are inviting that harassment. Goes back to your concept of this anchor, the femininity yes. anchor. Yeah. They're constantly, they're just tied to femininity the minute they're in this relationship. And then... Or the minute the relationship becomes known to the unit. Right. So, so yeah. that was the other thing is the timing of these events. So for one woman, she said that it was when she got engaged that her commander moved from sexually harassing words to trying to assault her and actually touching her. In another instance, this one man that this woman had been friends with and had been friends with his wife, and he had never had any sexual harassment comments towards her. He actually sexually assaults her like a couple weeks after she got a boyfriend and he's married. He has a baby and he sexually assaults her in his apartment. And so it was very clear that these things were related. Rosa Maria, who was sexually assaulted by her boss the day her boyfriend left for a training and they had just gotten into a relationship a couple weeks prior. And she was on the phone with her boyfriend at the time where this guy was just hanging out waiting for her. And so it was very clearly connected to heterosexual relationships. And I never asked about this again. Like this is just coming from the data. So Oof, that's it's a lot to take in. 
So your second grouping of findings related to pregnancy, a femininity anchor that would elevate gender and bureaucratic harassment, that is non-sexual harassment related directly to the pregnancy itself. How often did this type of harassment occur amongst your participants? So as I said, eight out of nine women described elevated harassment when they were pregnant. There were only nine pregnant women in my sample. So two of them experienced elevated bureaucratic harassment and seven elevated gender harassment. And so I argue that the two femininity anchors invite different forms of harassment because they create different meanings. So for uh, women who are in heterosexual relationships, it invites more sexual assault and sexual harassment because it's a, a reminder of femininity in a sexualized way. And then for pregnancy, it's a reminder of this is a man's space. You are embodying femininity and you do not belong here. And so we're going to ostracize you via gender harassment. So we're going to disparage or demean based on gender. We're going to denigrate your pregnancy. So women talked about how their pregnancies were often invoked in comments. So you can't be late just because you're pregnant or you get all this special treatment because you're pregnant or actually the accommodations that the military gives. Because, again, the military has great policies for all kinds of things, including pregnancy accommodation. Those things would be used against service women in a variety of ways, either to disparage them or to say that they're not real members of the military. And then also they would be assigned things that were not technically problematic considering the military policies, but were designed to punish the pregnancy. So in one instance, uh, the woman was, you know, didn't have to do any physical fitness tests for a while. She was not allowed to lift anything heavy, but they assigned her cleaning bathrooms duty after this, after they gave her these accommodations. And, you know, it's very well known that in pregnancy, smells are very <laughs> difficult to deal with. Like if you open a refrigerator, you might vomit. You're very, you have a lot of nausea. So assigning her a cleaning bathroom duty after learning of her pregnancy and accommodating her in other ways was very clearly like a, a punishment for, you know, getting out of these other obligations. So I argue that pregnancy is seen as a way for women, men view it as a way that women can get out of institutional obligations in a way that cements them as outsiders. So the biggest reason is because pregnant women cannot deploy. And if you're not a deployable member of the military for reasons outside of pregnancy, you can be kicked out. And so it becomes this way of like, look, you don't really belong. You can't even deploy. You're not really a real member. Instead of being like, that makes sense that like people who are high risk right. reasons should not deploy and they could deploy again, you know, at a different time. Uh, there's a really good book. I think her name is McFarlane about pregnancy. And she says women actually have to hyper plan their pregnancies in the military or they'll volunteer for extra deployments to be like, hey, look, I know I already did my two deployments. This is, you know, I'm not getting out of anything in order to try to avoid that stigma. But the stigma just exists because when are you in the military? Like 18 to 38, 18, 20 to 40. OK, well, those are fertile years for almost all those years. People are going to get pregnant. So you also found that there was a racial component to some of this and that race actually intersected with gender and incidents of gender harassment when it came to pregnancies. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah, I think that the way in which pregnancy was interpreted by the people doing the harassing was based on race. And two of the black women in my sample who are pregnant were actually encouraged and bullied into terminating their pregnancies 
actually one woman didn't do it, but she had a miscarriage. And she said it was very clear that they were just like, this is unwanted. You need to take care of this. We'll help you take care of this, which, you know, they're not really allowed to do. It's against military policy. But the military doctor was saying this to her. And I argue in the paper and if you and in my book as well, that this is because of these more the social conceptualization that black fertility is dangerous, needs to be controlled and that black women are hypersexual and also like that they want to keep black women in the military as deployable members. Whereas for white women, they want to use it as an excuse to get you out. Like you don't belong anyway. So we've, there's always been a difference in perceptions of where women belong in terms of the labor force that has a long history in this country where white women are being confined to this, the spheres of home influence, whereas black women are supposed to be, or viewed as, you know, laborers and need to be in full service to the state, right? These assumptions about what it means to be a woman and what it means to be feminine are also erased. And there is a perception that Black women's sexuality is something that must be controlled and must be controlled by the state. And so I saw this as an extension of that. And there's a, a huge history of this, right? With the forced sterilizations of Black women in our country, with the incarceration of Black women at rates higher than white women, especially for things like status offenses like truancy white women are not as are not arrested or girls i would say for truancy as much as black girls because of the view of what it means to be out late and that gets layered on top of stereotypes of uh, sexuality and so i would say that in this case it's raced because they are trying to make sure that black women are staying in the military that they're deployable members and they're also controlling fertility whereas for white women it's used as like you don't belong here anyway get out like go get away from the military space and you know it's interesting because these numbers are so small but it happened to two of the black women in my sample so okay so we want to ask about implications but we want to do that for your work as a whole and so our final topic really for this episode is your new book Yes. Congratulations. <laughs> um, it's called Hardship Duty, Women's Experiences with Sexual Harassment, Sexual Assault and Discrimination in the U.S. Military. The first substantive chapter you've told us includes a farther discussion of femininity anchors, which is really what this episode kind of featured. Yeah. But can you tell us more about Hardship Duty, maybe how it differs from your article, expands off of your article I think that for the book, Hardship Duty really looks at how this culture, this femophobic culture seeps into how the military operates as an institution. So I argue that the military as an institution encourages and facilitates conditions that encourage sexual harassment. So it creates conditions in which sexual harassment flourishes and is expected. I don't look at the individuals who are doing the harassing. I look at how the institution creates the conditions. And so the first one, the first chapter is basically looks at this culture, this femophobic culture. I talk a lot more about slut discourse and how that operates in the military as well. And this, then I look at how this culture seeps into the spatial arrangements. So how is it that the physical bases are organized? What decor is on the walls? Women described pornography and like it's banned, right? You can't have pornography in the military workplace, but women talked about it being plastered in bathrooms at their workplace that they had to use. They talked about it being intense while they were deployed. They talked about it being in cockpits. And so what does it mean when like pornography is pasted in your workplace, all over your workplace in the physical environment? Other women talked about 
decor or signs or commemorative plaques that just demeaned women or objectified them. There was an example that I give in the book of someone receiving a plaque at their like leaving ceremony. It's called their hail and farewell ceremony that said like, you know, hitting on her, getting on her. And if you can't come in her, come on her. And this was like written out on a plaque, like an award you would get in a ceremony. And it says that on it, like what message is that sending to women in the unit? And then where's that person going to hang that in their office? And like some junior, you know, ranking person comes in, what messages are they getting when like, that's what you're writing. So I show how it's been embedded in physical space itself, as well as in like, it's complicated by the fact that people live, work and socialize in the same spaces, which some people can be malicious and some people you know, maybe they're like, oh, I want to like get to know that person. I'll go play basketball with them because I know where they play basketball. But if you're someone who's going to stalk someone, it's very easy to do in the military context. And then I show how these femophobic and hypermasculine meanings also shape bureaucracy and the way that policies are implemented or withheld. And then I look at how women adapt to these things. And so I look at how some women participate, some women try to confront it. And ultimately it's very difficult for them to do so. So that's the book looks at it, the, how the institution it's, does contribute to sexual violence vulnerability. The one piece I also discuss is the military always like to say it's a family, right? Mm-hmm. This is a brotherhood. It's a family. Yeah. You're getting a family and it's a really attractive narrative for a lot of people, but especially for people who are escaping something. So if you're 18 years old and you're escaping a home life that you don't love, or you're escaping a town, you're you're going to get out and see the world. That becomes a really attractive narrative. And then I argue that in promising a family, the military ends up replicating a lot of the violence and abuse people are seeking to escape simply because it reproduces those same kind of abusive and exploitative conditions. Yeah, that's the main chapters of the book. And I do include some of the intersectional analysis throughout the book as well, looking at how these things differ based on race, sexuality, and a little bit between enlisted and officers, which I would argue as a class mm-hmm. argument as well, because people who are officers usually have a college degree and have a little bit more money and they're able to live off base. If you're enlisted, you're pretty much always living on base unless you're married. And so you're stuck in that space for longer. And we do know that enlisted people have more, have higher instances of harassment and assault than officers. So. Yeah, that all sounds very interesting. Oh, we encourage everyone to give your, your book a read, uh, like, I don't even know what to say about the plaque like that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we've discussed a lot you know, with your article and what you've introduced. So the overview of your book that you've just given us. And so given everything that you've just discussed with us, what are some implications that come out of your work for you know future research, but also policy and practice? Yeah. I think for me, like what needs to happen is something to address this underlying culture. And the way to do it is you have the military is this unique situation where it takes a group of people and literally trains them to be new people. So we can train them to not be misogynistic. If we don't embed misogyny in those early lessons, then it could make things a little bit better. And so an example that I give in the book is in if you learn that you can't trust like women Marines in Marine Corps training as a man, if you learn to disrespect them and to hate them because they're not doing what you're doing to get there. And then you have drill instructors that say things like, and this is a woman in my samples shared this, things like the only good female Marine is one on her knees. If your drill instructor is saying that to you, what are you going to come out thinking? Like this is a time where people are being rebuilt to think differently and you're building them up with misogyny. So stop doing that. And you also have a unique system where you can 
And I don't think, and a lot of people will say, well, isn't this exactly the kind of culture that you need to win wars, right? You need this masculine, violent, aggressive culture. And I would say, well, we can decouple strength from gender. We can decouple being able to be stoic from hating femininity. <laughs> so we can decouple these things in messaging. It just takes a lot of work because what happens in the military is an extreme version of what happens in regular society, right? And so we have a lot of misogyny in regular society. It's just heightened. But the military has a unique opportunity to be able to train people in this way. And then, you know, when it comes to th- one of the things I argue is that we need to have leaders who care about these issues, but also everybody needs to care about sexual violence vulnerability as a problem. And so there are so many little decisions that can be made that can make a big difference for somebody's sexual safety. So a small example that I'll give is one woman needed someone was trying to break into her room every day and she complained about it to maintenance. And the guy there was like, why don't you just get a bat? I don't really understand the problem. And she's like a guy trying to break in. I need you to fix the locks. And so then he, the guy didn't do it. He didn't put in the maintenance request. So she set up an alarm with spoons where she would put spoons, a box of spoons on her doorknob. And every time the guy tried to break in, she would know and she'd be prepared. But if you have people making little decisions like that, think that sexual violence or vulnerability is a joke, then you're going to, that would have been a huge ability for her to feel safe if that person had just changed the locks. And that's a, such a small decision. So that's why it matters what leaders think, but it also matters what everyone thinks. And that takes training. The military has done an incredible job of getting people to look out for suicide and uh, signs of suicide because, and they've got people invested in that. Like people are very invested in looking out for signs of distress. They are told to never leave somebody behind if they think that they're going to hurt themselves. That is something that is grilled into them. Similarly, they can grill into people like you should be making spaces or thinking about sexual violence vulnerability in decisions that you make, just like they're thinking about the about the possibility of suicide when they're making those decisions. So they have this opportunity to do it. They also have this opportunity to kick out people. It doesn't just take a court martial to get someone kicked out for problematic behavior. You could separate them, separate them. So they have a whole nother legal or, and like job related process where you could kick out people who are showing signs of escalating behavior, but you need buy-in from people. To, and there are people who do that. There are lawyers who say, this guy had three harassment instances. I think he's going to assault somebody, we're going to move to administratively separate him. But you need people who are assessing that as problematic, right? And right now it's kind of ad hoc. So, and then also just making the physical environment safe. Like, I don't think you need, you know, this misogyny embedded in the physical space because then people don't feel safe. So many little things. And I feel like a culture is so difficult to change, but from what you've said, it does sound like there are people within these spaces who are trying to make a cultural shift. It just, like you said, ad hoc. So, all right. Well, those are all of the questions that we have for you. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for coming on and sharing your work with us. It's a very interesting topic, one that we haven't had on the podcast before either. So it's great. And it's been a pleasure. If people want to reach out to you, where can they get a hold of you? Is email best? Email's best. I'm sbonis at newhaven.edu. I'm also on Twitter at bonnesstephanie. So find me there. And we mentioned your book. Is that available pretty much anywhere? It is available um, on, you can buy it on Amazon, on Barnes and Noble, or on Oxford University Press's website. I have a 30% off coupon. So uh, I don't know if you, you do show notes, but it's, yeah. okay. you do, right? I'll send you the code for that. Yeah. Great. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. 
Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, or let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Crim Academy. That's T-H-E-C-R-I-M-A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. Or email us at thecrimacademy at gmail.com. See you next time. See you next time. time.